This is an ultimate global podcast. Hello, and welcome to our special weekly podcast on trending international and social affairs. You're listening to Saurabh Kora and George Mavros from Sydney. Well, welcome again to another exciting episode of the Ultimate Global Podcast. Um, and um, this is one of my favorite series um, on foreign policy and diplomacy. Last time we were joined by uh, Mr. Amit Das Gupta from India. He's a former Indian diplomat when we chatted about the India-Australia bilateral relationship. Um, and it's, it's pretty um, um, enthusiastic for me to see how that relationship has evolved. Not only that relationship, we are going to talk about global relations in general uh, with um, Amitji. Um, so thank you so much, Amitji, for joining today, first of all. Uh, we really, really appreciate you spending some time with us. Uh, we know how precious that time is. Um, so thank you so much for giving us your time and uh, also making sure that you come back to our podcast again, as we requested you last time at the end of the podcast to come back and have a conversation. So thank you so much for that, first of all. Um, and to start off with the conversation, uh, I might ask you the very first question uh, in continuation to our last podcast where we ended that how do you see now the India-Australia relationship after uh, Prime Minister Modi has already visited Australia now, he's gone back to India. How do you see that relationship even flourishing forward? Uh, and how do you see the vis- impact of that visit that Prime Minister Modi had in Sydney a few weeks ago? Uh, thank you very much, uh, Saurabh, and thanks to you, George. Um, it's a, it's a pleasure being on your show. And uh, I also think that um, it's a great thing to have these uh, sub discussions on these different subjects that you have, because um, I hope at least my talk on foreign security policy uh, is helpful for, for people who may be watching the show. Uh, coming to... Uh, Prime Minister Modi's visit to Australia, uh, I'd say it's a historic visit. And uh, I'd say it is no less or no more historic than his very first visit in 2014. What he achieved at that visit actually created a new template in the relationship between India and Australia. And over the past years, What the two governments have done is to nurture the relationship, to strengthen it, uh, to find uh, different avenues of collaboration and cooperation. There is, of course, a threat that looms large and which we can go into as we discuss the future of global relations. But over and beyond that that particular threat, there is... uh, there are significant areas of collaboration. And uh, these are not only on security and defense, uh, there are the collaborations in education and research. Uh, people-to-people contact has, has increased manifold. And later this year, we hope the Comprehensive Economic Cooperation Agreement, also called SICA, would be signed. So I'd say that it's uh, we are on a terrific footing, and um, some people have described this relationship as being among the most definitive in the 21st century, and most certainly one of the more important relationships in the Indo-Pacific. So I'd leave it at that for the time being, and then we can unravel things as we go along. Of course, and uh, one of the popular points that we discussed last time was regarding the three C's. And when you said it's not about the three C's, in fact, it's about the three E's of the relationship. Um, And that point had a lot of popularity amongst the people I met after that podcast episode uh, in my workplace here in Australia. A lot of people could relate with what you said when you talked about energy, environment, economy and education. Uh, It was so important to focus on those three E's, as Prime Minister Modi also told. How do you see those three E's now kind of evolving into something else or still remaining the same after that visit? No, I think, think, you know, uh, the 
Prime Minister was very gracious to refer to the three E's, which is what I've been writing about for many years. Uh, but he also uh, referred to the three D's. And uh, that's, that's something that the Australian High Commissioner Barry O'Farrell talks about, about democracy, about defense, and the diaspora. And, and, and I think the point uh, that we're all trying to make is that uh, while we may shift the vocabulary and the alphabet from C to D to E or whatever, a relationship is actually like a language. You need every alphabet. Uh, you can't say one is replaced by another. And, and language is, is a combination of each and every one of the different alphabets. And that is what Prime Minister Modi was alluding to when he said that the most important elements in a relationship are essentially mutual trust. Uh, and, and when you have this mutual trust, uh, it is accompanied by mutual respect. And uh, while they may not be alphabets um, like C, D, and E, they actually constitute the essence of any sustainable relationship. So I believe that's the path that Canberra and New Delhi are embarked upon. But then, as I also said, there is a threat that looms large, uh, which possibly brings us close together. Before, before I bring George into this discussion, um, Amiji, I wanted to also talk about the Quad Summit that happened uh, in Japan uh, recently, before Prime Minister Modi's visit. So there was uh, this Quad Summit that was happening in Japan. There was a lot of there were a lot of issues that uh, were discussed in that Quad Summit, and there was also a critique that it got overshadowed by the visit of the Ukrainian Prime Minister into that, and it was overshadowed because of uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, and that kind of became the main point of discussion because it affects all the other countries as well, and it has an indirect effect on the economies of those countries as well. Um, how do you see that critique and how do you see the impact of the Quad Summit discussion that happened this year? Look, I mean, there are two elements to this. Um, the Quad Summit was to be held uh, in Sydney. And uh, it, it needed to be shifted, uh, for want of a better word, uh, to, to Japan. Uh, that's because President Biden had domestic obligations. Uh, that required his presence immediately after G7. So let me try and combine uh, three topics. One is the the, the visit uh, of, of the Ukrainian president, the timing of his visit. The second is the G7. And the third is on the sidelines of the G7, uh, the Quad being held. Uh, naturally, the Quad was not held with the kind of fanfare and uh, all the bundabust, uh, if you like, that uh, Australia had planned. Um, it worked out very well for India because India then became the, the, uh, the primary uh, recipient of all the, all the hard work that the Australian government had put in. But if you combine all these three, I think uh, uh, what Prime Minister had said even earlier to both the Russian and the Ukrainian presidents, even before uh, the meeting in, in Hiroshima, uh, was that this is not an era of war. This is an era of peace. And if you juxtapose that along with uh, the Japanese choice of the city where G7 and Quad were held, it was Hiroshima. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we know, uh, were the were bombed and lost lost countless lives. For decades after that, people suffered, and um, many were diagnosed with cancer. Um, there were also uh, the tragedy. There was also the tragedy of mental health, of people being able to come to terms with what had happened. 
Uh, and uh, so when you when you think about how the Japanese think, they're very subtle in the manner in which they communicate signals and messages. And by saying that the summit would be held in Hiroshima, what they were trying to communicate is that this is the time for peace. This is not the time for war, because war has a whole series of complications. Um, you know, people can sit in air-conditioned rooms and talk about war, but at the end of the day, it's a soldier who dies. It's uh, human beings like you and me who are bereaved. Uh, husbands uh, die, fathers die, sons die. And uh, it sort of is somewhat meaningless beyond the point. And so when we look at what Japan was trying to achieve at the G7 summit and what Australia through its leadership was trying to achieve at the Quad and what uh, the Ukrainian president's presence did in Hiroshima was a reiteration of the need to search, to find and to establish peace. I think I, these are the critical takeaways from me. But peace is not always easy to find. A lot of challenges and roadblocks that come in the way. But you can't afford to lose hope. And I think that's what the Prime Minister of India was repeatedly emphasizing in the conversations that he had at Hiroshima with all the different partners. Did that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. That, that was so insightful. I want to bring in George into this discussion and ask, I want to ask him the same thing that, uh, how do you think uh, the kind of things have, that have happened with India and other countries have kind of evolved? And do you have any questions for Amiji, George? You're on mute. Ah, schoolboy era. Um, firstly, I, I agree um, with what you were saying, Amaji. Um, it was interesting that in the Australian press, we were trying to build up a story of, of how this was some sort of snubbing um, and, and step backwards for the Prime Minister because... Um, uh, President Biden wasn't going to come out to Australia and we're going to move here and we're going to do this. It's, it, to me, it seems as though parts of the media want to stir up trouble at the moment. They want to find an angle. They want to, they want to cause, well, not necessarily cause, but they want to, um, what's that old saying? Um, uh, good news doesn't sell papers. Um, so I thought, I thought there was a lot of thought that went into, um, what our prime minister said. I think there was a lot of thought that went into, um, what the Indian prime minister said. I think there was, there was, um, numbers of people that didn't say much, but said a lot. And I think the actions, as you said, uh, um, I don't think there was any, um, any coincidence uh, in where the Japanese held the meeting. Um, I think there was a message in there for anybody um, to, to read. So um, where do you think we go from here, though? Because we, we can talk about we, we don't want war. We can talk about we want peace. We can talk about all those sorts of things. But when you've got somebody like... Um, Mr. Putin, who seems determined um, and has almost um, backed himself into a corner that he has to now keep moving forward. How do you see this playing out? I, I mean, George, thanks, thanks for, for your question, but thank you also for the remark that you made uh, with regard to people in the media wanting to stir up um, 
sort of trouble. I think I think those on the media who wrote negatively and saw President Biden snubbing uh, Prime Minister Albanese, um, I think they got the wrong end uh, of of the of the real situation. It showed, in my view, extreme lack of insensitivity on their part not to recognize that President Biden is the president of the American people and the president of the United States. And his first obligation is to resolve a domestic issue. That was one of the most pressing issues that had come up in recent times. And for President Biden not to attend and return to the U.S. and help resolve that issue would have been seen as negligence on the part of a sitting U.S. president. So yes. I think for people to, to misconstrue that and to assume that even though there was a prompt problem back home, that President Biden would nevertheless fly to Papua and New Guinea, and then from there, lo and behold, he would fly down to Sydney. Of most certainly he wanted to do all of that. But there were domestic compulsions that required his immediate presence and not just his time. The snub would have been if Prime Minister Modi, who was slated to be in Sydney uh, for the Quad Summit, decided to all of a sudden call it off. Because that would have been insensitive. And that would have also shown that without President Biden's presence, uh, that meeting would not have taken place what in any case had already taken place in, in Hiroshima. So why was there any need? So I think, you know, uh, when the media writes, I mean, as you rightly said, they opt for sensationalism. But I think sensationalism should be tempered with a sense of realism and also not for the sake of writing articles. There needs to be some objective behind it. And I think they were very unfair on Prime Minister Albanese. On, on the second aspect, you know, um, uh, if we, you know, well, is Putin right? Is Putin wrong? Is Ukraine right? The Americans right? There's a, uh, uh, there's a very powerful uh, critique by uh, Henry Kissinger. I'm not terribly fond of Mr. Kissinger for multiple reasons. And uh, uh, there are some very strong critiques of, uh, Mr. Kissinger, uh, during his time as Secretary of State and the kind of advice that he has given and how, as a result of his advice, actions have been taken which have resulted in many deaths of many people. But Mr. Kissinger says that after the Cold War and after Russia collapsed, after the Soviet Union collapsed, what the U.S. needed to do was to actually seek out Moscow, work with Moscow, in order to create a collaborative atmosphere in Europe. The exact opposite happened. The real and everyone else faces is not Moscow, it's Beijing. Beijing is the real issue that they have to confront. But what they did was that they put all the eggs in the basket regarding Moscow. And when they did that, that whole relationship with Moscow, which could have been a strong collaborative partnership with Europe, broke down. What we now see are fissures within Europe. I mean, the Germans don't like uh, soldiers being sent or weapon systems being sent. And, and it's created a lot of divisiveness within Europe as to what should be the stance. Second, uh, you know, if you take provocative action, you know, for example, if you decide to station nuclear weapons, Moscow is very clear as to who it's going to be used against. Now, at the end of the day, who is winning this war? In my view, the defense industry. They are the ones who are winning the war, not the people of Europe, most certainly not the people in Ukraine, and most certainly not the Russian people. So I think, I think it's a it's a wonderful time for the defense industries because as you see this rocket being fired or that missile being shot off, uh, sales are going up. You know, it becomes a very, very good 
opportunity to market things. But that's not how you achieve peace. I think uh, Kissinger's words are very powerful regarding U.S. policies. And uh, he says, it's, if this is policy, they should realize that it's actually, in my book, the lack of a policy. And I think, I think these are harsh words, um, but we've not seen the end so far. Believe me, Russia can bleed for a long time, a very long time. And no one is standing, really and truly standing by Ukraine. What's it, about three days ago that President Ukraine criticized the West for not standing by them sufficiently enough? You know, uh, Ukrainian soldiers are dying every day, apart from soldiers. Innocent men, women, and children are dying every day. You know, whether it's a hospital being bombed or something else being bombed, residential areas being bombed. Uh, if, you, if you want to stop this war, there needs to be willingness to stop it. Um, I think when you back someone, push someone back to the wall, uh, as indeed uh, the American system uh, did or tried to do with Putin, you will only have a reaction. And uh, that's not in the interest of global peace. It may be in the interest of the weapons industry, but most certainly it is. And second, astute foreign policy requires that you recognize who exactly your enemy is. And I think uh, as we proceed through this discussion on the future of global relations, Washington should realize that its main problem is not Moscow. Moscow has been defanged. Moscow has, has its back to the wall. It's not the same Moscow uh, that was there during the Cold War. Beijing is a different ballgame altogether. And so if you need, need to actually recognize and identify your real enemy and decide to counter that real enemy, you need to be prepared for it. And uh, you don't need to be bothered by shadows. You need to be bothered by the real thing. So that would be my take on this. Um, you're on mute, George. Twice in one show, Sarab, you can um, hit me when no one's looking. Um, do you think we're going to see China make a play regarding Taiwan while this unrest and distractions going on in Europe? Or do you think that they're just sabre-rattling a bit more at the moment? Well, I, I personally think that uh, uh, China is still trying to sniff the air and figure out what's going on. There are too many imponderables uh, that are there. Um, and uh, while one part of military strategy might be that if they decide to take over Taiwan, uh, which they're quite capable of doing, uh, would the West be stretched uh, both in Europe and in the Indo-Pacific and find it difficult to handle? Uh, or uh, because China take on militarily uh, or or should they try and look for a more peaceful solution my my particular hunch is that china relies so much on western markets that it would do uh, it would make significant efforts not to lose those markets and uh, you know taiwan is not that important for them what is really and truly important for them are Western markets. And uh, take India-Australia two-way trade. It's $25 billion. Take Australia-China two-way trade. It's $250 billion. You know, so the comparisons are very, very um, uh, disturbing. And so my, my guess would be that China, uh, and, and this weekend, proceed to discuss in more detail, but China refuses to acknowledge, uh, you know, I mean, it's recovering after 100 years of humiliation and 100 years of war. And uh, what China feels is that 
it has a legitimate right to be seen as a hegemon. And uh, if you if you look at history, uh, immediately after the Second World War, uh, the Cold War started, and and the world really broke up into two parts. You know, the the Soviet Union and its allies, and the United States and its allies. But in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed, uh, you had only, it became a unipolar world. It became a U.S.-driven world, and everything is was as per uh, U.S.'s wishes. Uh, it, it decided that uh, Iraq needed to be invaded because there were weapons of mass destruction, despite Americans telling uh, the American establishment that there was no proof on this. Now, this unipolar world is being challenged by a, another country which is asserting its, uh, its role as a hegemon. So you, will we go back to a bipolar world? So there, there are a number of important and critical questions. Can, can China afford to lose the US market? I don't think so. Can China afford to lose Europe? I don't think so. So is it in their, uh, to their advantage for them to invade and take over Taiwan at this stage? Uh, I don't think so. But of course, they will continue to protect and uh, their position and their standpoint and, and, and be very visible and vocal about why Taiwan belongs to them which is the reaction that Nancy Pelosi got when, when she decided to visit Taiwan. And uh, uh, the, the Chinese uh, resorted to very strong armed military tactics with the, you know, uh, they didn't bomb anyone, but the fighter jets were there all over, even after, the, the Nancy, after Nancy's visit. So it's like Tibet. <coughs> They are not going to say that Tibet doesn't belong to them. But uh, with regard to Taiwan, I doubt if they will invade it. I think that kind of answers the question that George was asking. Um, I also want to, um, I also want to kind of uh, understand not only from the country's point of view, Amiji, but also talking about a very important body here, which we are completely forgetting, and that's called the United Nations. Now, if I if I just go to Google and type, why was the United Nations formed? It says that the United Nations was established. We all know that, but I'm still reading it out for our listeners and for us to discuss here. The United Nations were established after World War II in an attempt to maintain international peace and security and to achieve cooperation among nations on economic, social, and humanitarian problems. Do you think that we are kind of forgetting the importance of United Nations, or is there a need to relook into why was United Nations formed, and what can be the role of United Nations in these kind of situations to become an intermediate or to become a mediatory body to resolve conflicts? Otherwise, what, what, why is the reason of such bodies being formed when they can't uh, mediate or they can't uh, kind of... Uh, resolve conflicts, because that's the main reason for these bodies, to maintain peace, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a very good point, and uh, we can have an entire session. From the time that uh, the world was changing, uh, Second World War, uh, it was just over, and uh, everyone had high hopes, uh, and, uh, you know, the, the talk in Europe was, we will not forget, you know, je me souviens. I will, I will always remember, you know, uh, the destruction that had taken place, the introduction of the Marshall Plan, the reconstruction of Europe. You know, this is a, also a time when people said the League of Nations had failed. Uh, now we need to construct a new world order. And this order was actually driven by the rest, by the West, driven by rich countries, you know, institutions like the World Bank, you know, all the Bretton Woods institutions, as they are called. And the United Nations fell into that same trap. 
And uh, today, uh, not just today, uh, for over 20, 25 years, a number of countries have been saying that the United Nations and even the World Bank, the IMF, they're not representative. Things have changed globally, across the globe. I mean, how can you ignore a country like India or South Africa or Brazil, um, Germany, that they, they deserve uh, rightfully a seat in the Security Council? Now, if you have a, if you have a two, uh, uh, let's say, parallel pillars, one is that it is unrepresentative of the global community, and the second, that it is entirely US-dominated and Western country-dominated. I mean, you've got France, you've got the United Kingdom, and you've got uh, uh, the United States, who are three countries uh, representing the rich world who are members of the Security Council. And, uh, uh, of course, you have uh, the Soviet Union, now you have Russia, and you have China. But what I think countries are arguing is, A, you need to be more representative, and if you're more representative, then one country will not dominate against the other country. I mean, take the Sudanese war. Let's not, let's not take, uh, let's say, the crisis in Russia and Ukraine, uh, because everyone's eyes are focused on this. But how many of us know anything about Sudan? Very few of us. And there is a horrible war that's going on there. The United Nations has not been able to do anything over there. Nothing. And if they have failed, if they fail to achieve success in Sudan, if they have failed for the last 70 years plus uh, with regard to the Israeli-Palestinian issue, I mean, there are very few areas in which the UN, apart from being an overpaid bureaucracy, has demonstrated any success. You know, so I'd, I'd argue that unless we now start revamping these critical institutions, um, you know, there's very little hope for, for humankind. I mean, these institutions don't contribute. Uh, it's fantastic to go and uh, you know, visit the United Nations, lovely building. Uh, but if there's a crisis and a problem, they're not the ones who are out there helping resolve it. Uh, so it is, it is. I mean, many would argue that, uh, uh, you know, it's possibly time to pack it up. I think one of the other points that I wanted to discuss with you uh, before I pass it on to George uh, for his uh, next round of notes that he was noting down while he was answering that question uh, was Mr. Jashankar's statement. I was pretty impressed with um, uh, S. Jashankar's statement that he gave uh, during the 17th edition of the uh, Globsec Forum in Slovakia. And he stated that Europe has to grow out of the mindset that Europe's problems are the world's problems, but the world's problems are not Europe's problems. And I think that's a very good statement, which, uh, you know, people don't dare to say on such forums. He had the courage to say that. But, but, but it has got a lot of reality in that, that when Europe thinks about it from their point of view, they see only their problems and they consider them as the world problems. So do you think that there is, there is a need for Western countries to grow out of that mindset and say that, you know, there are other countries as well which need help? And their problems also need to be considered in this in this world. Yeah, most certainly. I mean, you know, uh, Shankar said what he said because today India is uh, on the front foot. Uh, it enjoys high respect, recognition in in the global community, and uh, it is it is quite possible for us to make statements of this nature. At the same time, it really is important for the Europeans to grow out of their colonial mindset, uh, which they haven't. You know, they still believe uh, that, uh, uh, that that to educate uh, people in Africa and Asia and elsewhere in Southeast Asia, East Asia, uh, they still believe that they're right on everything. Uh, they, 
they lack the humility and the human decency uh, to recognize that countries have issues that they would like addressed and uh, that they don't need anyone else to address it for them. Uh, we've, we've had many years of colonialism, um, whether it's from the British uh, who came and stayed with us for 200 years, rent-free and without invitation. Uh, and of course, there were many others, the French and the Portuguese. And we have always been very wary of external interference. And consequently, we would appreciate if the Europeans recognize that countries are growing, it's no longer the same world, um, and that they would have to engage with us. We are the fifth largest economy in the world, and we are surely larger economy than the United Kingdom. So I think, uh, and I, I let me leave one, one example with you. Um, and you will understand as to why I feel a little bitter about this. When the Ukrainian uh, uh, problem started uh, and, and people were fleeing, among the people who were also fleeing were Indian students. And uh, they trekked and walked for miles on end and came to the, to the railway station and were going to board the train. And they were told that they were not allowed to board the train. Because the first people who would board the train were Ukrainians, not them. And uh, there is, there is visual, uh, footage available on this, and you can, you can look at it on, on, on the net. How these students were asked to remain on the platform, which they did. The government of India evacuated the students by sending special aircraft. We're not going to leave our people behind. But we do expect a certain element of human decency, which was not forthcoming from the Europeans. So I think, I think uh, Jay Shankar was blunt, he was straightforward, and it needed to be said. It really needed to be said, because the Europeans still remain uh, in the past. Uh, you know, and it's a terrible feeling. Racism is growing very strongly. I mean, you you must have watched the World Cup finals um, and how, uh, you know, just before the finals, the semi-finals, how, how England lost and uh, how this uh, young boy hit the ball and uh, instead of hitting the net, it hit the goalpost. When he went back to London, he was abused and all the abuses were racial. Now, this is how they treat uh, people of color, right? And I don't think this, this, this sentiment, this behavior has changed. It's deeply colonial, and it's time that they, that they look around at a world that's dramatically changed and will continue to. Absolutely. Um, and I think um, I would definitely agree on some of those points, uh, Amitji. Uh, what do you have to say in this regard, George, when we talk about these issues like racism coming into picture as well, kinding, framing the way we look into global relations? Um, well, firstly, I have, a, I have a slightly different view of that, uh, Amitji. Um, I seem to recall a, I think it was a Brazilian soccer player uh, that it was determined he lost a game for the Brazilian team. And I think it was a Brazilian guy. Uh, and when he went back, his own people um, actually killed him. Um, so oh, you're talking about the Colombian goalkeeper who scored a, yes. a own goal against the, the yes. none other than the Americans. And yes. uh, Colombia was knocked out of the finals. Yes. Now that wasn't racism, uh, and I'm not so I, I'm not a hundred percent accepting of the of, of the interpretation you've put on the on the English side of it. I think what what happens is you get thugs, morons, and and bullies, and had that. Um, had that young man been um, uh, a redhead, uh, they would have made made comments about the redhead. Um, um, 
they make comments about you being old. They make comments about you being bald or bearded or this or that. So I, the the um, the sporting side of things, um, I think that could be a whole conversation in itself, Amaji. Um, but but I understand the point that you're making. One of the things that I do want to mention uh, is you were talking about uh, the uh, UN. And and if I read you right, um, you were suggesting that quite possibly the UN may have um, now become um, superfluous. And 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 there is this argument by a lot of people that the UN still serves a purpose and it's still um, still quite valid and we need it. And then there's others that say that it's it's run its race. I happen to be one of the people that, that find the UN quite strange now. Um, we have this magnificent Security Council and, and the Security Council can make all these decisions and the Security Council's there to help mankind, except you've got countries in there like Russia at the moment and China and the UN the UN Security Council can say, let's go and do this and stop Russia, but Russia has the permission to veto it. Um, it it's, it's like, well, we'll have a court case, um, but, but four, of the, four of the people that come to court, if they just say, we don't want to, we're not going to do that, it's over. It, it, it's, the UN is, to me, I really don't understand the UN anymore. And and it's not that the UN's not capable. It doesn't have the intestinal fortitude to actually do what it could do. If 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 people were if if people were seriously committed to what the UN's supposed to be about, unfortunately, there would have been a lot more bloodshed, but it would have been it would have been resolved a lot quicker in many conflicts throughout the world. And I, I ask people that are watching this, taking up what Amaji was saying, how many hospitals and that do you know about that have, have been damaged and how many people do you know about um, that, that have been killed and how many innocent people and how many farmers and how many wives and all those things in Ukraine? Tell me three incidents that you know about Sudan at the moment. Tell me three incidents that you know about Sudan in the last six months. And I, Amaji, I don't think many people could tell us any, including myself, including myself. So what is it, what is, what is it when, we, when we want to be righteous? Is it the actual act? Is it the actual behaviour? Or is it where it's occurring? For example, there's many a person that talks about would we have really bothered about Kuwait if there weren't oil mines, oil oil wells involved? Um, I 100% agree with you, Amaji. The, the 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 Sudan thing is is a damnation on all of us because it just goes on and on and on. How much, how much equipment has been sent to um, the Ukraine in any one week versus any one year to the people that need the help in, the, in Sudan? It's just, it's, it's just so disproportionate and not funny. And so until mankind wants to come back to actually practising what it preaches for all people, I, I, I see it as getting worse, not better. Um, and I, I'm not a fatalist and I, and I haven't given up, but at the moment, um, I think we've lost our way. I think we've lost our way. And to another point that you made, I, I was president of a local soccer club years ago, um, which, was, which was founded by a Christian church. And I made an announcement at, at one of our, um, I think it was my first announcement at our first annual general meeting. 
And I said that our soccer club uh, promoted good religious values. And one of the people that was in the audience at the end of the uh, presentation came up to me and he said, you can't say that. You can't say that about this soccer club. And I said, I can't say what about this soccer club? And he said, we do not promote good religious values. We promote good Christian values. And I said to him, so you think only the Christians have good values in religion? And, and that is part of the problem of mankind. It can't, it can't be that if, if you're not Christian, then you can't have any good ideas. It's all of us. And, and, and yes, it, it's up to the Christians to go and save the world and, and go and help all these natives and all that. Who asked them to? Who said they wanted it? Men, mankind is an interesting beast to uh, look at. And we call all the animals wild. No, I mean, I think, I think, George, uh, you put it very eloquently. And uh, it's, it's, the, it's the absence of humanism uh, which, which bothers, bothers so many of us. And I'll share, share one, one example, uh, which is uh, that, you know, the WTO had a, a ministerial meeting. Uh, which is known as the Doha Round. It was held uh, in the same year uh, that the 9-11 tragedy took place. And, um, you know, the when the WTO was constituted um, in, in a place um, in Uruguay, uh, round which took place and uh, created WTO. It was a transition from GATT to WTO. And I remember going for a number of these um, these uh, rounds and these meetings and it would always alarm me that the Indian delegation even though we are a very large country uh, would be very small as compared to, let's say, the American delegation, which would have about 350 or 400 people, including lawyers and uh, accountants, and, you know, people you would think that nothing to do with, with, with the fine print of the Uruguay around, but they did. They did. And uh, the joke that ran at that time in the developing countries was that the transition from GATT to WTO was catastrophic, and uh, because none of the developing countries understood what they were signing, and so when the Doha round took place, the developed countries came up and said that this Doha round will not just be the Doha round; it will be the Doha development round. Developing countries had never asked for it to be a development round. And do you know that even today, that round, the discussions on the round have not been concluded. You know, the negotiations have neither been fair nor have they been equitable. So people are not against free trade. People want fair trade. And this discussion that George and I have been having and what he expounded with regard to, let's say, the UN, Many of us believe it has lost its relevance because of the way in which it is currently functioning. Yeah. It is unrepresentative and it is driven by agenda, which is not an agenda for global good. And unless you restructure many of these institutions, unless you include the voice of the South or developing countries, you are only going to have a system or a society or a world that is divided and not working together. You know, North and South are seen as divides, as opposites. 
right? If China becomes a hegemon, these will be, it'll become a bipolar world, right? So when you have situations like this, they always lead to confrontation, which is why when Saurabh was started this discussion on the UN, the operative phrase is United Nations. We are not a United Nations in the UN. That would be my, my uh, attempt at complementing uh, and supplementing uh, what George said. And I agree with him totally. By the way, the, the, the Colombian goalkeeper who, who was shot dead was shot dead by the syndicate because the syndicate had betted heavily on Colombia winning the game. And uh, when, when Colombia lost the game, everyone lost money. And so they did the only thing they felt uh, they should do to the goalkeeper uh, was to take it out of him, and so they killed him. Yeah. Um, Sarab, I'd just like to share something that um, um, Amaji, you just caused me to write down another saying. I, I, I within my my group of uh, connections and network, I'm, I'm renowned for all these sayings that I have, but they all have some sort of a meaning. Just listening to you then, um, I wrote this down. The, the true test of your morals and your ethics comes when you know the right decision that you have to make will be to your personal detriment. I wonder who makes it. That's wonderful. It's wonderful. And it's so it's so it's so poignant to our conversation about so many things tonight, because I personally believe that there's many people in these, whether it's the WHO, whether it's the UN, whether it's all any manner of these international groupings. You damn well know what the right answer is, but will you make the right answer when it's to the detriment of you and your country? And and um, I think that's probably where there's an unsettling with people because the 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 morals and the ethics of those decision makers is being questioned because people know the right answer is not being made, and it's because it would be detrimental to the decision maker. Yeah. What, I forget and I will, I will, I will be adding that into my book of sayings, and I will acknowledge that you are the one that caused me to think of it, Amit. And you can also acknowledge the ultimate global podcast if you want to. I'll, I'll do that for your benefit, Sarab. You know, you know, George. Uh, uh, what you just read reminds me of a of a fabulous uh, uh, site I once saw on on, on television. Um, I think there was this. Uh, marathon that was being run and uh, there was this African who was in the lead and uh, uh, suddenly he stumbled he had a he had cramps and he stopped and he was in the lead by yards and uh, there was this other athlete who ran past him then stopped came back put his arm around this African athlete helped him reach the finishing line and then, as he was a few inches away, he left the African and said, complete the race, you won it. You know? I mean, that for me was nobility of the highest magnitude. Mm. You know? And it's, it's what you're saying. It's, would you do the right thing if it was in the debt to the detriment of your personal interest? This yep. athlete did it. He did it. You know, and uh, which, which you know, to since we were discussing this, one of one of the uh, visits that the Prime Minister of India did from Japan was that he went to Papua New Guinea, and in PNG, uh, where he met with a whole lot of other uh, Pacific Island leaders, 
you know, we forget how much they need us. And uh, the general tendency is to deal with the ASEAN countries, to deal with the richer world. But we forget that these island states are integral to our interests. In the case of Solomon Islands and China entering into a security deal very close to Australia's own borders. You see, we can't afford to, to ignore countries, small, poor, whatever they may be. Because at the end of the day, they have as much a right to natural resources and to well-being as uh, maybe I have, or someone else has, or some country has. And, and I think this is the point that the Indian Prime Minister was trying to make over there, which is, to, which is basically, let us grow rich together. Let us grow rich together. It do, does not diminish India's wealth if, if uh, the Pacific Islands were to grow rich. It does not diminish India by any way, or Australia, if we were to collaborate with, with, the, with each other for the climate change challenges that the Pacific Islands face, or health issues, or education and skilling, how does it negatively impact us? It doesn't. So I think if we learn to start seeing the bigger picture, at the end of the day, we benefit from it. And I think I think that's the that's where I think the whole concept of again I go back to what Saurabh said. The whole concept of a united nations actually comes. Did that make sense, Saurav? Yeah, absolutely, Amitji. Um, and I'm I'm a bit conscious of uh, your time. So one of my last questions for today, um, unfortunately, uh, <laughs> because I would not like to end this podcast for sure. The, the kind of engaging discussion we are having. Uh, but one of my last question is. Um, related to the other bodies now, we have talked about United Nations. Now, there are so many other bodies. We've got the European Union, we've got the G7, the G8, the BRICS. Um, there are so many bodies. How do you see all of these bodies kind of together playing a role towards resolving those critical issues that uh, countries face, like poverty, like malnourishment? like uh, poor infrastructure for education and health. You know, in Australia, we are pretty fortunate that we have got, uh, you know, countries which are developed have got a good education and health system, at least better than, um, you know, the developing countries. So how can we make them better? How can we bring people out of poverty? These are the issues which really need the focus of these councils and these unions that we have formed, isn't it? Yeah, but you know you're you're very right, and uh, I think I think if you you may have already read my article on BRICS, and uh, what I what I basically uh, uh, wanted to say is that because the world has significantly changed from what it was four or five decades ago and even more, it's important to recognize contemporary realities, and it's. It's very essential to accommodate uh, the, the concerns and the aspirations that countries have. Now, what happens usually is that when you have these groupings, they are seen as being confrontationist and combative. So if you take BRICS, for example, which, is, which was BRIC and then became BRICS, and now will expand even more, 19 countries have have uh, expressed a desire to join BRICS. Uh, Mexico possibly will become the first among the 19 to join. But you have essentially right now Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa. Now, take the scenario that George is talking about. We now have a situation where Russia and China uh, have clearly identified that the U.S. is a problem. You know, everyone says the U.S. and its allies, right? So the U.S. is a problem. Now, if U.S. is a problem, then is BRICS going to become a confrontationist organization? So I think that is a very significant point for us to keep in mind. I personally believe that the objective of BRICS 
was not to act as a counter to US or Western countries, but rather to say that in a global order that you are crafting, take us as a co-partner, because then we can have a united nationwide solution to global problems. Because many of the global problems are not problems of a poor country. You know, climate change is not a problem that, let's say, Mauritius faces uh, or, or Maldives faces. Global warming is not a problem that the Pacific Island countries face and nobody else faces. These are problems which are global. You look at health. If you look at what the pandemic did and how it ravaged countries as rich and uh, as the United States, you do recognize that these are global problems. So would it not be better for us to work together? I think that was the spirit with which organizations like BRICS came up. And many other organizations wanted to grow as a region. And why did they want that? They want, didn't want disparities within themselves. So ASEAN, you know, the countries in the ASEAN didn't want disparities. The EU, it wanted to, because, you know, you can't compare, let's say, Germany with Portugal, you know, and therefore the, the European Union introduced something called structural funds. Structural funds were funds that were given from the EU to its poorer uh, member states like Greece or, uh, or, or Portugal to lift their economies so that at some point of time, everyone would be equal in terms of development and wealth and do well. You know what I mean? And, and that has a lot of spin-offs because then you don't migrate as a result of a push or a pull factor. You know, I mean, you don't, you don't leave uh, a country and say, I'm going to go to the neighboring country because I'm bound to find a job there and I can't find any jobs in my country. No, you have this seamless movement of people because you feel your talent probably works there. It's like you may decide to move from New South Wales to Victoria. Now, you may do that only because you're getting a good job offer in, in Victoria. Not that there are no jobs in New South Wales. Now, I think... This global good, this common humanity, this sense of global fraternity, these need to be our core concerns, our core aspirations. Not confrontation between the US and the rest or China and the rest. And therefore, I argue in my BRICS article that India has an extraordinary opportunity of actually working towards peace. You know what? You have Russia and China who are anti-US. You have Brazil, where you have a left-leaning president who, who, the, who Washington is worried about. You have Mexico, which is saying that, look, I have a problem. I have a problem because Washington is interfering in my domestic affairs. You have South Africa, which has taken a rigid position on the uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict. Now, in this kind of a scenario, everyone will say BRICS is anti-US. But I don't think that was the reason why BRICS was created. And so, as you very rightly put it, it's important for us to pull our heads together and recognize there are challenges that if we don't face poverty, which you raise, if you raise the income levels of people, it only transforms the market. You know, people will have the capacity to buy. Otherwise, large numbers of people are denied the possibility of purchase. And you have income inequalities which take place and it sharpens the divide so that some enjoy the wealth, the rest don't, and there is no market for what remains behind. You know, so, so I, have a, I, I wanted to end with a sense of hope, uh, just like uh, George spoke about hope. I, I believe that it is incumbent on all of us to, to work as best as we possibly can to achieve the goals that we all aspire for. And it's not a zero-sum game that I can do better in life only if I make sure that you are worse off. So um, that, that would be my take on this. Yeah, and I think those are very critical issues, um, Amitji, when we talk about unequal distribution of wealth, when we talk about racism, poverty, 
you know, poor education and wealth system. We just keep on forgetting about these things. Um, and, uh, you know, some other kind of things like wars, they become the main point of discussion because of, uh, because of the ego of countries trying to dominate over each other uh, and the different kind of diplomatic issues. But, uh, you know, as there is a famous uh, saying that goes, if wishes were horses, then beggars would ride. Uh, we can't expect everything that we wish uh, would happen as we, we have wished it. Uh, but it's always good to be hopeful. It's always good to be optimistic and have a discussion at least towards the right direction. Because unless you don't have a discussion, you don't have any argument or you don't have any points that you put forward. You can't move forward uh, in the right direction. Uh, so thank you so much, Amitji. I'm, I'm pretty glad that today's podcast, again, was able to contribute towards discussion uh, that people will listen to and possibly can take some lessons out of it towards a better global world. Thank you very much. It's been an honor and a pleasure to speak to both George and you, Saurabh, and I wish your podcast series all the very best going forward. Thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you for joining us and I look forward to the next time. This is an ultimate global podcast. Hello and welcome to our special weekly podcast on trending international and social affairs. You're listening to Saurabh Kora and George Mavros from Sydney.